We'll be uh, reading uh, Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 26 this morning as Pastor Bruce continues in his uh, series in Isaiah 40. Behold your God, the incomparable majesty of God today. And the text is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 through 26. So if you will follow along uh, as I read. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure? Weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel. Nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compares with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words, that you are the incomparable, that you are majestic, that you are God, the creator of all, and that we would just contemplate our relationship with you, and that we would behold you as the God of our lives and that you would sit on the throne of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I began with the same question that we began with last Sunday, and that's this. How big is your God? As we enter this new year, no question is perhaps more important or more relevant than that question. How big is your God? Here's the problem, though, and perhaps I can illustrate it this way with a story. On January the 12th, 2007, Joshua Bell, one of the greatest musicians in the world, carried on a social experiment. This is a man who had recorded multiple albums and whose recordings sell millions every year. A man who books over 200 concerts annually with ticket prices in excess of $100, $150 each. This man, Joshua Bell, stood incognito in a Washington, D.C. subway with an open violin case in front of him, holding in his hands a 1713 Stradivarius worth $3.5 million. He then proceeded to play six classical pieces as people throughout the subway bustled past and barely noticed at all. They probably looked on him as just a step above a homeless person who is simply playing a violin pretty well, though, as they walked by. Occasionally, 
some people would stop and listen. In all, according to the cameras that were put there, 1,097 people heard him that morning. Only 27, though, put money in his violin case with a total offering of a little more than $32. The social experiment is a modern-day parable of the 7 billion people in the world who simply bustle past Almighty God without a clue just how awesome He is, just how majestic He is, how magnificent He is. You see, that day in the subway, everyone walked by Joshua Bell thinking he was a nobody, except one lady. One lady who stopped and said to him, I've heard you. I know who you are. I heard you at the symphony hall last week, and you were incredible. And so there was one lady who actually knew she was standing in the presence of one of the greatest musicians in the world. Everybody else vastly underestimated the magnificence of this great musician. But that is nothing compared to what we do each and every day as the world turns. And as the world turns, we go through life, we walk through our lives, and we are prone to underestimate the majesty of God. My concern here this morning, and as we begin this year, is not just that our thoughts about God are too small, but that our hearts toward God are often too crowded and even too calloused to see how majestic our God really is. But it doesn't work. It only hurts, and here's why. Because God Almighty, listen, He is our only life giver. He is our only comfort in the wilderness, as we learned last Sunday. As Augustine said to God long ago, You made us for Yourself, O God. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And so now more than ever, we need to stop. And we need to behold our God. We desperately need to see the incomparable majesty of God. And that is the whole point of Isaiah chapter 40 here. Through the prophet Isaiah, we get to see... God in His majesty enthroned above humanity. Now listen, it is a good thing if you ever get the opportunity to do so. And I've had the opportunity on several occasions to do this. And it is a good, good thing to stand at the foot of the Rocky Mountains and behold the majesty of them. It is a good thing, if you get the opportunity to do so, to stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and behold the beauty of the Grand Canyon with the work of our Creator displayed before us in the Rocky Mountains or before us in the Grand Canyon, and even to stand there in awe and to sing, How Great Thou Art. But that view of God is not enough. We need more than seeing God through our own eyes. We need to see God through God's eyes. You see, if we see God through our own eyes, 
we diminish him without meaning to or without even realizing it. But when we see God through God's eyes, it changes how we see everything else, including life in the wilderness. You see, Isaiah, the prophet here, he understood this. And so he shows us here in Isaiah 40 the incomparable majesty of God Not through our eyes, not even through Isaiah's eyes, but he does so through God's eyes. In verses 1 through 11, we saw this last Sunday, where God promises to comfort us in the wilderness with his saving grace. And now here in verses 12 through 26, God anticipates, if you will, almost an objection to it all. It's kind of like this, making a promise is one thing. And that's what God promises. He promises to bring comfort to those who will trust him in the wilderness and to bring comfort of his saving grace. And now, it's like there's an objection. It's God making a promise is one thing, but keeping it is another. So can God really do this? Can we trust him in this? When God destroyed the Assyrian army, was that just luck? Or can God actually handle now the Babylonian army? Can God overcome the obstacles in our lives? Even in our world today, can he do that? And Isaiah's answer is yes. In fact, his answer to us echoes the words of the psalmist in Psalm 115.3, where he writes, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. You see, our God is able to keep every promise that he has given, including the promise of his comfort, the promise of his saving grace. Why? Because he is the creator. He is Lord of creation, and he is Lord over creation. And so Isaiah encourages us, he compels us to simply behold our God and stand in awe of it all. And see his incomparable majesty, not through your eyes, but through his eyes. So let's try to do that this morning. Let's open our eyes to the word of God. Let's open our heart to what Isaiah says here to us. And see what we see here. Number one, we first of all see that our God is Lord of creation. He is Lord of creation. Now, as you look at this section in Isaiah 40, and as Zach read the text for us. What was the first thing you might have noticed? Well, perhaps some of you couldn't help but notice all the questions that were being asked in this particular section of Isaiah 40. In fact, Isaiah asked no less than 14 questions in just 15 verses here. Now, this tells me that our God does not suppress thinking. Instead, our God inspires thinking. He inspires our searching and even our finding. It's interesting because in our world today, it's pretty cool to search for answers. It's a good thing. It's a cool thing to do. But it's not cool to find answers in our world today. And if you actually find answers and you tell the world that you know the answers, you'll be deemed intolerant and even narrow-minded. But Isaiah is asking questions for God to answer so that we will know who our God is and know so confidently. He is Lord of creation. 
And these questions are meant to simply, in a, in a real way, humble us as well. To humble the arrogance of humanity. I like how Tim Keller put it. Us questioning how God runs the world is like a seven-year-old questioning the mathematical calculations of a world-class physicist. That's a lot of truth to that. Who can, who, can, who can comprehend this God of ours? And what we see very, that Isaiah shows us here is that the inconceivable immensity of God dwarfs the universe. We can hardly conceive of the immensity of God. In fact, what does that even mean? The immensity of God. Well, the immensity of God, it has to do with God's relationship to the universe. In other words, God fills every part of his creation with himself. Therefore, there is no place in the universe that you can go that God is not fully there. That means there is no container for God. There's no box that you can put God into. King Solomon himself, he knew that well when he built the temple of God. At the dedication of that temple, King Solomon says in 1 Kings 8.27, But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even he, the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. And so God is not contained by anything. He's not dwarfed by anything. In fact, it's the opposite. God dwarfs everything himself. Look what Isaiah asks in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And marked off the heavens with a span. Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure. And weighed the mountains and scales and hills in a balance. Anyone want to step forward here this morning and say, oh, I've done that. No, none of us have. But our God has done all this. Listen, our God is so immense that he has measured the waters of the seven seas in his cupped hands, it says. Now, that's a staggering achievement because the ocean, in fact, there are places in parts of the ocean that it's more than six miles deep. And yet God, it says, the ocean, he dwarfs the tiny stature of a human being. The ocean dwarfs us like this. And so imagine... You know, to try to put this in context, imagine going up to Smithville Lake and you walk to the water's edge and you crouch down and you cup your hand and you begin scooping water out of the lake. How many scoops would it take to notice the lake going down just a little bit? You're like, well, that's impossible. I could stand there for 100 years scooping water out of the Smithville Lake, and we wouldn't notice any movement at all in the level of the lake. And you're right. So let's try something a little smaller. If you tried to scoop out a bathtub full of water, it would probably take more than a 1,000 handfuls to empty that tub. And who knows how long it would take. But God says he measures it in the cup, all the oceans. Beyond this, God has marked off the cosmos with the span of his hand. And the span of his hand is is your, uh, you know, tip of your tongue to your pinky. He's measured it. And science has given us a sense of just the stunning immensity of our outer space. But its distances are still inconceivable even to the mind. The farthest any person has ever traveled into space occurred when the astronauts on Apollo 13 were on the far side of the moon. In traveling at the same speed as the Apollo capsule just to reach our nearest star, Alpha 
Centauri, some 4.3 light years away, we would have to travel over 114,000 years just to reach the nearest star. Cosmologists tell us that the observable universe is 46 billion light years across. And yet Isaiah says God measures it with the span of his hand. God is also immense compared to dry land on earth. He has gathered, it says, the dust of the earth in a measuring cup, and he's weighed the mountains on a balance. Now, the dust of the earth, that's the most insignificant part of dry land. And yet God is able to measure it and know how much there is. On the other end of the spectrum, God has weighed the mountains in hills. This means God knows how much Mount Everest weighs. In fact, if you were to ask Google, how much does Mount Everest weigh? The answer you would get is Mount Everest has an estimated weight of 357 trillion pounds. And that is just a guess. And yet God knows exactly how much Mount Everest weighs, along with every other mountain and hill on our earth. The immensity of God is staggering, and it is meant to humble us and encourage us. You see, God is using things that are immensely greater than us. And he says, I am immensely greater than them. And yet... This same God is at work, listen to me, on your behalf. That's, that ought to just humble us. He is working out his plan of salvation to save sinners like us. He is working on your behalf to bring you comfort in the wilderness and strength when you need it most. It doesn't stop there. Notice the second point here, the inscrutable wisdom of God. It humbles humanity. Listen, the universe testifies powerfully to the wisdom of God. When you stand back and you observe the universe, its complexity, its immensity, the power, the balance, the beauty, the order of it all. Listen, God uses all of this to humble humanity humanity look what it says in verses 13 and 14 who has measured the spirit of the lord or what man shows him his counsel whom did he consult and who made him understanding who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding and of course in the rhetorical question the answer is obviously no one has but what we see here is it was the very wisdom of God, the mind of God, that enabled him to create the heavens and the earth and set it all in motion with the sun and the moon and the stars. You see, God alone understands how our galaxy works. In fact, we are told later on in Scripture that he sustains it all. He's the one that holds it in motion. It was the wisdom of God that figured out the complexity of the human mind, of the human body, which means God understands best how our sexuality works when he created us male and female. Who has understood all this? No one has. Who has instructed God as his counselor? No one has. Erwin Lutzer says it like this. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? 
I'll say it again. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? In other words, God has never learned anything, and he never will. No wonder God doesn't hire consultants. No wonder God doesn't need a second opinion. No human being can teach God a single thing. And this is especially true when it says in verse 14, who taught him the path of justice? You see, so often, and I think you'll admit this to me, we'll all be in agreement here, the twist and the turns of God's past in redemptive history, well, they're, they're difficult to follow. Difficult to understand. As Paul said in Romans 11.33, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. That literally means that God's footsteps cannot be tracked by human reason, by our understanding. We can't follow, in other words, the train of thought, God's train of thought. It's beyond what we can comprehend. And yet, how many times do we stand here in the midst of our circumstances and look out on humanity through social media and the news, and we want to question God about his justice? But it says in Psalm 97 too, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Listen, no one can teach God the paths of justice. In fact, you need to look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ to see his commitment to justice. He will make all things right one day. Bank on it. Count on it. Number three, we find the infinite power of God towers over the nations. Yes, the nations of the world are daunting, terrifying obstacle to the peace of God's people. And yet, look what the nations are compared to the power of God in verse 15. Isaiah says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he, that is God, takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Again, to help us try to put this you know, comprehend it a little bit, put it in context. Imagine, uh, you know, we're not in wintertime here where it's 12 degrees outside. We're in July, it's warmer, and you want to wash your car. And so you take, you have a bucket of water, hot, soapy, sudsy water, and it's a bucket, and you're carrying it to, on, on the driveway to your car. And as you're carrying it, your leg, your knee accidentally bumps the bucket, and it jostles it. And a drop of water spills out. And when that happens, do you go, oh, shucks, man, I can't believe I lost a drop of water. i got to go refill my bucket now. No, who does that? Nobody. You could, you could jostle two or three drops. In fact, a whole lot of water, and you don't do that. Why? Because a drop of water missing from your bucket of sudsy, soapy water to wash your car makes no difference in the world. It doesn't matter. It's insignificant. And so it is with God's deployment of the nations in his plan for history. Listen, and yet, don't misunderstand what Isaiah is saying here about our God. This doesn't mean that God despises the nations. 
That's not what Isaiah is saying here by God. But neither is God impressed by the nations. Yes, God loves the nations. They are not worthless. Why? We know that because God sent his son to save all peoples, the nations across the world. But they derive, the nations, they derive their worth from none other than God alone. But sadly, the nations are blind to the glory and goodness of God Almighty. Pursuing instead their own glory, their own purposes, their own self-satisfaction, and at the same time resisting his kingdom. But this is still not a problem for our God. The nations cannot alter or stop God's plan one bit. Now, let's be honest. When we look at the swirling events of the nations around us today, it's rather easy to be daunted by it all. In fact, when we look at the massive tide of opinion in our country on issues of morality and immorality, along with the growing hostility toward Christianity, it's even easy to become discouraged and even intimidated a little bit. But God means for us to read these verses here in Isaiah 40 and to behold our God and not the nations around us, nor even the circumstances in which we find ourselves in. Listen, for our God, Isaiah wants us to know, our God is greater than all the nations together. They are as a drop in a bucket. So now the question that's in front of us is this. Well, what can we possibly offer to such a God? Look what it says in verses 16 and 17. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel. Now, you've got to understand the language here is sacrificial language. In other words, the whole country of land of Lebanon could bring all their timbers, their trees, and build a sacrifice to God, and it's still not sufficient for the worthiness and majesty of God. They could bring all their beasts. It's not enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before God. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. In other words, what we are told here is that the combined wealth of all the nations of the world are not sufficient to honor God with a suitable offering for him. So where does that leave us? So, so what could we, 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 What could we poor sinners possibly offer to such a righteous and holy God? Well, we have absolutely nothing to offer. That's the point Isaiah is making here. We have absolutely nothing to offer him. And God knew it, and that's why he sent his son Jesus to provide for our salvation. Woohoo! Hallelujah, right? You see, God saw that there was nothing that we could offer. God knew that there was no way that we could atone for our sins. And so God prepared his own sacrifice. And God sent his own son to provide for our salvation. For only the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ can equal the worth of God himself and cover the multitude of my sins and your sins. Now, despite this majesty of God, despite the the greatness of our God here, here's what happens. Arrogant people have consistently rebelled and made their own gods to worship. Can you imagine? 
Look what it says in verses 18 through 20. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? And there's an exclamation point after it. As if, you got to be kidding me. You would actually have the audacity to go make yourself another God, an idol, and worship that instead of the true, majestic, living God, the one true God of the universe? You've got to be kidding me. A craftsman crafts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood then that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. And so there is nothing here in the universe to which God can be compared to. But these puny minds of craftsmen make false gods that steal the affections of people away from God who alone deserves our worship. And here's the sad part about all this. The idolatry here of God's people is the very reason why they were exiled to Babylon. Why they are in the wilderness. Now that is the height of folliness, of foolishness. And this is what God exposes before us. Notice this. God, before the exile even happens, because remember Isaiah is prophesying about it. He's talking about a future event that has not happened yet. And he's now telling the people before it happens, here's your problem. This is the issue, your idolatry, which is going to send you into Babylonian exile. Because you have exchanged these me for these puny idols, these false gods. And God now through Isaiah exposes that wretched folliness here. You say, well, what is idolatry? Well, let me tell you this. First of all, it's not just an issue in Isaiah's day. Please do not think that. Idolatry is an issue that still exists in our day. If you don't believe me, all you got to do is go to 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. It's the very last verse in that chapter, that book, 1 John, where the apostle John says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. So what is idolatry? Well, here's the biblical definition of idolatry. According to what Paul writes in Romans 1, verse 25, where the Apostle Paul says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. That's the essence of idolatry. It's, in other words, it's an exchange of God's truth for a lie. It's anything you turn to and rely on other than God to save yourself. It's what Tim Keller says or calls functional saviors. And the truth of the matter is, we all have these functional saviors. We struggle with these functional saviors to help us cope with life, to help us deal with this trouble and that trouble and to get us through that circumstance. We have these functional saviors that kind of help us, that we, we turn to to help us find our identity, our significance, our meaning, and even hope in life. And maybe you don't see an idol necessarily in your life because what matters to you most is part of this modern world. 
And so you're not bowing down before a, quote, carved image of stone or wood, but whatever functional Savior you're turning to for meaning, significance, and hope, and anything else that's a crutch in your life, that's an idol. It may or may not be overlaid with gold. It might be or may not be cheap wood or stone. But here's the problem with every idol. According to verse 20 here, he seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. In other words, it's lifeless. It's powerless. Maybe a skilled person helped you establish your life. Helped you find a career. Helped you seek out meaning in life and significance in life. Or maybe you found your functional savior through friends or social media. Regardless, every idol, Isaiah is telling here, it has to be propped up. Because it's powerless, it's lifeless. And if what you're counting on has to be propped up, then how can it hold you up, especially when you're in the wilderness? If your functional Savior needs changing as your life changes, then how can it secure you forever? It's only when we get fed up, when we are exhausted enough, when we are disillusioned enough to see that our functional Saviors are pitiful, they are stupid, that we are now ready to behold our God and to actually see God as our true Savior. Who else would love idolaters like us. Who else would promise to comfort us in the wilderness with His saving grace? Listen, there's only one God who can love us and save us. And it's the almighty, sovereign, gracious God who is actually there for us and who sent His Son to provide for our salvation. That is the only God. And so behold that God... Our Lord, our God, is Lord of creation, and there is no one like him. So why? Why would you ever turn to a functional Savior of your own making or of this world's making? It will disappoint you in the end. It has to be propped up. On the other hand, our God, He wants to prop us up. He wants to help us along in our journey to the very end. Trust that God. But then we also see that our God is not just Lord of creation. Our God is Lord over creation. And in this next section, Isaiah, he's basically calling us back to basics. He's calling us back to what's obvious about God. Look what he says in verse 21. He says, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? In other words, Isaiah isn't telling God's people anything they haven't yet heard already. He's not rocking their world with some new ideas about God. Isaiah is telling them and us To do what? To behold your God. In other words, go back to your theology. Go back to who God is as he has revealed himself in his word. He's Lord over creation. 
Isaiah establishes God's position now as sovereign over all the earth. Look at it in verse 22. It says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Now, from time to time in our household, one of my sons will get extremely, and I mean extremely fearful of an insect. I'm not saying who, but he's sitting here today. And when this happens, I have told this one particular son of mine, Jack, (laughs) on more than one occasion, Jack, now let's look at this logically here. Do you know how much bigger you are than that spider that you are running from? This does not make sense. You call yourself a football player, son. And yet you're running from a spider. That is incongruent. That is illogical. What's going on here? You're much bigger. It's not even close. Jack, look, just watch me. And yet he still runs. He's 18, running from spiders. And here, that's the image. Listen, God uses the image of grasshoppers. And he says that we are like grasshoppers to him. God is vastly superior to our power and our wisdom. He could squash us like a bug if he will, but he doesn't. He loves us. He provides for us. He cares for us. He doesn't squash us. He doesn't abandon us nor forsake us. Now, God has already declared that the nations are like a drop from the bucket. But now God does something else. He zeroes in on the so-called powerful people of the world. And look what he says in verses 23 and 24. He says, who brings princesses to nothing? It makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely they are planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. And so God, get this, is actively at work in our world today. Isaiah is telling us that it is God who raises up the powerful people of the world. And then he brings them down again according to his own purpose and for his own glory. You see, the power brokers who seem so formidable are to God like these little seedlings, scarcely planted. And God merely, and they wither and die. And the wind blows them away into oblivion. How apt are we to forget this about our God. How apt are we to stand in awe instead of human achievement, of human power, of human celebrity, while forgetting the supremacy of God over creation? This is a truth we must always remember. Notice it in your notes, that God is actively sovereign over heaven and earth. Do you realize what this means? Man, get this. Go home today with this truth. This makes God the only world leader that we really need to fear. No wonder God says in verse 25, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. 
So who can even remotely be compared to our God? Listen to me. The gap between God and us, all created beings, is infinite. God's power and God's wisdom absolutely dwarfs anything the human race can muster. And to drive home this point even more, Isaiah ends with one final question. Isaiah takes us outside on a clear night. And Isaiah gathers us around. He says, as if you haven't got it yet, look. And here's what he says in verse 26. Lift up your eyes. Behold, see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. He's talking about the stars in space. You know, God, it's interesting, God gave to Adam the task of naming what? All the animals. It's a daunting task. Can you imagine trying to do that as Adam? And yet, God alone can name all the stars. Put that in perspective. And by God's power alone, not one of them is missing from the night sky. Listen, I have trouble just remembering some of your names here. And some of you have trouble just keeping track of your kids. But not our God. Listen, Google says that there are approximately about 5,000 stars that are visible to us on a clear night. And do you realize God knows every one of those stars by name? Plus all the other billions of stars in the universe. Now, I'm not great at running my life. And my, my, you know, probably neither are you. But God's got us. Like the stars, not one of us goes missing from his attention and care. But perhaps you're sitting there and you're saying, but so what? Is all this just one big stunt by our God? No. Here's what God is doing through the prophet Isaiah in writing this chapter here. There's a point to all this with the majesty of God that Isaiah is showing us. You see, God wants us to see something about himself. Behold your God. He is large and in charge. God here, notice in your notes, he is greater than you can imagine, but he is also closer than you think, and he cares for you more than you realize. Listen, the God who brings out the host of stars by number every night, who calls them all by name so that not one of this is missing. Yes, this God, let's be honest, this God is greater than what we can imagine. Who can fathom this God? It's incomparable. It's inconceivable. But understand something as well. He is also closer than you think, and He cares for you more than you realize. And so I ask you, do you think that God deserves your confidence? Do you think that God deserves your trust with your whole life? Listen, God knows your every need right now. This God is watching over you day and night. Yes, you are dwarfed by this world. And this world is dwarfed by this universe, but this universe is dwarfed by God. 
And that is the God who is caring for you. Know that God's greatest glory is not that he hung the stars in space. His greatest glory is that he watches over you. God is not too great to notice you. Listen, God is too great to forget about you. You can stake your life on this God. He is Lord of creation. He is Lord over creation. And yet, He still cares for you. And so do not, listen, leave here this morning. And as you drive home to watch the Chiefs game this afternoon, do not underestimate the majesty of God. But furthermore, do not underestimate how much you matter to this God. He promises to bring you comfort in the wilderness, the comfort of a saving grace. And that's what he did through his son, Jesus Christ. And one day he's going to bring us the ultimate comfort when his son comes back a second time to usher us up into glory. Bank on it. He cares for you. And in the meantime, God, as we will see next Sunday, he gives strength for the weary. Anybody here weary? You've got to return next Sunday to see what God does for you. If you need a little bit of strength in that wilderness you're walking through, our God's got you. Our God's got you. He cares for you. Yes, he's greater than we can imagine. But he's closer than you think, and he cares for you more than you realize. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Help us to behold you. Help us to see you as Lord of creation and Lord over creation. Forgive us for our flawed views of you and diminishing your greatness and goodness. And help us to see you as you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And Father, for those who find themselves in difficulty or trouble even now. May your greatness be their confidence, and may they put their hope in you alone. May we surrender our functional saviors for you alone in your son, Jesus Christ, as the one true Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.